Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited today. We have a special guest coming from Oregon, has 35 plus doors, started back in 2006. I've been doing it full time for the last 10 years and has a quite a unique little strategy and spin behind seller financing, what we all come to know and love when it comes down to creative financing, having the sellers be the bank. This guy, Jeff, has a unique spin to be able to actually supercharge your seller financing and so much more. So he's been helping out so many people along the way during his journey and, uh, and making you know, incredible breakthroughs for his finances and his family. And I'm excited to be able to have you on today. What's happening, Jeff? How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's an honor. Yeah, man. So talk to us. Anybody out there that doesn't know who you are, where you're from, what you're up to, do you mind just giving that 10,000 foot view? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm Jeff Stevens. What I do is often called the thoughtful real estate entrepreneur. So maybe if you've seen something called the thoughtful real estate entrepreneur, that was me. And yeah, I've, I've been a full-time entrepreneur one way or the other for 20 years now. This is a 20-year anniversary. And the last 10 years of it have been exclusively in real estate entrepreneurship. And so, yeah, we have a, you know, a rental portfolio. We're kind of always buying, occasionally selling, mixing some opportunistic flips here and there, as I like to say. But a couple years ago, I was asked by a couple people to help them out and to coach them a little bit. And I was definitely reluctant and resistant at first to do that. But then as I thought about it more, I thought, you know what? Actually, the way that I do this and the way that I learned to do this from my own coach is a little bit different. I mean, I mean, maybe more than a little bit, a lot different than sort of what we think of as the mainstream real estate investing approach. And so I, as I started to consider it more, I was like, maybe I should be doing this because I feel like there needs to be more awareness of, I guess, maybe this approach and advocacy for it, because I think it offers some really great and different benefits than sort of like what we normally learn in real estate investing. I love it. So talk to us. You got started in 2006. Why real estate for you? And was there any inspiration or like, what were you doing prior? Yeah. So I had a real job out of college for about two years in the marketing field. I love a it. A real job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could say it was even shorter than two years. I had a real job for two years. And then I, I left that to kind of start freelancing as a, a marketer, basically. And so that grew into like a brand consultancy and marketing agency for about 10 years or so. And cool. a couple of years into that journey, of course, like a lot of people, I picked up the, the, the purple book that we all know and love. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. My wife and I had just bought our own primary residence and it was you know, good timing, good neighborhood, and it appreciated a bunch on paper. So we extracted some equity. And uh, the first deal we did is not a deal I would do again today. However, I'm sure glad I did it because it got me in the games. I bought a listed triplex about a mile from home just with a bank loan. Oh. And that was cool, self-managed and you know, got to know the ropes a little bit. And so like, as we would make money in our marketing business, we'd pay down our HELOC and then borrow again and buy a couple more rentals. And, and then we'd move and kept the old house and things like that. So as a part-timer, we got to maybe about six units or so. And then in about 2013, I said, you know what? I think I'm, I'm a little tired of the marketing business, to be honest. And 
this real estate thing is really exciting to me. And so that's when I pivoted full-time to doing this. And then the first couple of years of that were even a little bit like stumbling around in the dark, trying to, I always like to say there's like real estate investing is this massive buffet of like 80 million different topics and ways ways. you can do things. And oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like you have to like get your plate and go sample like, a lot of the buffet, but then once you taste some things you like, you have to go back for seconds and really only focus on one thing and like for just forget everything else is even there. Yes. So that's what I did the first couple of years and off we went. I love that. That's a very unique, you know, illustration. I'm a big advocate of that. Anybody just getting started in real estate, I always say there's like 30 plus ways to make money in real estate. And I think the person that knows a vast majority of just the ins and outs of what it looks like from beginning to end for each of those strategies, I think that's important. It adds to like the tool belt, right? And then you have more options at the end of the day. And then whatever your heart's really gravitating you towards and what you really get attracted to, like deep dive into that. You could really, I wouldn't say master it, but you can learn it within the next six months. If you go all in every single day, learning from the books, podcasts, YouTube, and finding the mentor out there that does exactly that strategy. So did you have any mentors or family members that said, hey, do this? Well, I found one. Thankfully, I found one. And I just want to say, like, I love you just used the word heart a second ago. And mm. I think that uh, as I reflect back on my own journey and now as I look at the journey of, of the people I get to work with, I think that what we're all trying to do ultimately is find the intersection of what makes sense to our head rationally, like, oh, this approach works. And then and what makes sense to our heart. Sure. Because there have been there were times in my as I was still nibbling from the buffet, you know, where I was doing stuff that like, oh, this makes sense, but oh, it does not feel like me at all. Like I don't, I feel like I need to go take a shower after I've done this thing, put up these bandit signs or whatever. That just, that wasn't my thing. Not that, that that's a disparaging comment categorically about that, but it wasn't for me. Yep. And then similarly, I had the opposite experience too, where I was doing things like, oh, this really feels good, but it wasn't working. And so it was really about finding that intersection of the head and the heart that I think is something we all, we all have to do. But I found that, to answer your, your question, I found that uh, intersection of the head and the heart when I uh, finally, well, people had mentioned this person to me, Greg Pinio, who was my, my coach. And I, for some reason, didn't jump right on it at first. But once I finally started working with him, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is what I'm meant to do because this is the intersection of the head and the heart. And that's the, the strategy that I've adopted and doubled down on, focused on, and now I'm an advocate for myself today. Love it. So you didn't have any friends or family that was actually doing real estate at the time? Not really. Not really. I had to be a little bit more self-propelled in that sense. Yeah. Okay. And then you were basically, you utilized the HELOC and you ended up just getting you know traditional financing on a triplex, which I think is very smart. But you mentioned previously that you wouldn't actually have done that looking back. Like if you had to start over, what would you do differently? Well, I would, what I mean by that is if that exact opportunity showed up today in my life, I wouldn't pursue it for a couple of reasons. One was there wasn't enough upside. Uh, there wasn't enough entrepreneurial opportunity on in this particular deal, in my opinion, that I would require today. But the other two reasons are, I just don't like to buy listed properties and I don't like to get loans from banks. And both of those things were true at the time. Now, I'm really glad I did it because it got me in the game. And getting started was much more important than, you know, getting started in the perfect way that 10 years in the future, Jeff would, or 15 years in the future, Jeff would say, oh, good work. You know, I just, getting started was what mattered. Why don't you like getting money from the banks? <clears throat> because I have virtually, 
Well, it's definitely a pain in the ass. Yes. I mean, beating one's head against the wall is that experience. I don't like the idea that somebody else is putting a limit on what I can or can't do or achieve. I don't like that it's a take it or leave it proposition for the most part, right? I mean, there's no, you don't sit down with the banker and say, okay, let's work, let's negotiate this through. It's very much like here are the programs. It's it's all pretty black and white. I mean, from a regulatory perspective, they have to treat everybody the same. So it has to all be contained in a in a PDF somewhere of policies. And either you can or cannot take it. <clears throat> and so uh, several years ago, I actually drew a line in the sand myself. And I said, I'm never going to put myself in a position where my acquisition is contingent upon a banker saying yes to me. Now, I might opportunistically refinance something with a financial institution when I, it's like I don't need to, need to, you know? But uh, I decided that a while ago. And that sounds like, wow, he's really putting a lot of constraints on himself. And I am. But constraints are very empowering at the same time because it's just a whole category of stuff I don't even need to think about anymore. Yeah. Gives me a lot of focus. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, wearing the same outfit every day. It's like, you don't need to think about the nonsense, right? You don't need to worry about putting on the same pair of socks. You just put them on, you know, Uh, which color socks am I going to put on today? It doesn't matter. It's the same day. (laughs) So I like that. So staying laser beam focused and you like the opportunity of, of getting, sitting down at the negotiating table with the seller and working out deals. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The words win-win are so cliche, but I think it's so important because the best deals come when it really is truly the best thing for them. And we know it's the best thing for us. But I think it's important to note, though, that not every seller at the beginning of a conversation fully appreciates that that option could be the best for them. And as a result, it's really easy for us as buyers to show up with like, oh, I'm going to show up as the professor and I'm going to teach them this. But that's also not really a great approach either, to be honest. So the the approach that I advocate for is really one where we're having this conversation and we're kind of helping them come to their own conclusion, perhaps, that this method of selling their property might really be in their best interest, but without it seeming like an overt lesson. Well, in, in many cases, it really can be because they actually start to become the bank. As long as they focus on negotiating favorable terms for themselves too and create a true win-win scenario, then yeah. you know the best spot to always be in is the bank. And just like you mentioned, you weren't gravitated towards bandit signs, but you know, trying to find that crossroad, right? You aren't a huge fan of dealing with the banks and many, many people out there aren't because it's hard to figure out all the moving pieces to be able to figure out what to say, how to fit within their box of lending and how to be able to get as much funding easily from each and every bank versus me personally going to each and every seller and playing the numbers game of of figuring that out. Sometimes that can be daunting, right? But when you laser beam focus, see what your heart is gravitated towards and really just drill into that, it can be fun, it can be exciting, and it can be exactly what lights you up to be able to get the deal done one way or the other. I was just looking down at my stack of cards. I was doing an ad the other day and I was like, you know, we get a lot of money from the banks. We we know how to be able to talk to the banks to be able to get all the funding that we want. So it's easy for me. But when I would go and talk to a, you know, a seller, trying to convince them and educate them on, hey, this can be good for you to be the bank and like work out this win-win scenario. And they say, no, I got to jump to the, I would call it like the next bank in, in your you know, flip-flop scenario, but to the next seller, that can be daunting for me, right? So yeah. it's, it's very unique to find the spin of like, what 
your heart gravitates towards and what you get attracted to to yeah. be able to unlock what works. Yeah. So talk to me when it comes down to the first deal, you're doing this part-time, still working the marketing agency. You just started snowballing and getting a couple properties, self-managing it at the time, selling, buying. You know, At this point, when did you decide to go full in and has the strategy you know like when did it switch over and you're like hey creative financing wow the lights are going off i want to do this i don't want to buy off of the market anymore at retail prices i don't want to do the traditional financing anymore i like this creative thing yeah that was probably about eight years ago for me so i actually went full-time as a real estate entrepreneur yeah 10 years ago. And for the first two years of that, then it was sort of sampling the different strategies and figuring, figuring it out, you know, did a couple flips and here and there. And, but then it about eight years ago was when it really clicked in for me and I connected with the right mentor. And then ever since then, it's been a lot of focus on one approach. Okay. I like that. And I think if we could lay into anything today, ladies and gentlemen, I think it is so crucial to whenever you find that one thing that lights you up and you're like, this is the strategy for me then please, please, please like focus on that strategy. Do nothing else. It is very easy and very enticing to jump on you know, Facebook today and see that we're talking about seller financing. When you have been focusing the last three or four months on learning how to do fix and flips or wholesaling or multifamily, it's like just because the next guru or whoever on social media or whatever it may be is making it look easy and they light up behind it because that's their niche. You know, I highly encourage you like focus on that one thing. The the individual that chases three rabbits catches none, right? We all know that saying. Focus on your one thing. Do not give up. You could literally be three feet from gold. And I'm telling you, within six months to, you know, let's say a year, if you're not catching something from that time frame, then something's off and you're missing the mentor part. You're missing some key element. It needs to make that pivotal point that changed. So, yeah. so for you, you went all in, you got the mentor, you decided, you know, creative financing was a strategy. Talk to me about this big, bold claim that I love to hear right here. So the supercharged seller financing, I've mm-hmm. never heard it before. So for anybody that hasn't heard it either, like myself, do you mind just breaking it down of what the heck that is? What does that mean? Supercharge? Yeah. Yeah. So in order to do that, I just want to provide a little bit of context first. Okay. When we talk about seller financing, that even that term can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Good. And so my, here's how I choose to define articulate it. that. I guess, yeah, define it myself is I, I think of creative financing as, as situations where if there's existing debt on the property, we're going to incorporate that into our new deal structure. Sure. And then to me, seller financing is where either there isn't existing debt, or if there is, it's just going to be cashed out, taken out, paid off, whatever at the time of our purchase. So I'm just going to talk about the latter category. And so what that means is we have a situation of promissory notes and trustees, right? I buy a piece of property from somebody, title transfers to me, I'm the owner, and now they are the beneficiary of a promissory note, and they have a deed of trust secured by the property. So that's the context of what, what I'm talking about. So every promissory note has got, you know, plenty of details. I mean, we have to certainly know what the note amount is and the interest rate, how the payments are calculated. When does the interest start accruing? When are the payments in relation to the accrual of interest? What's the term of the loan? So there's all these standard things that we have to have in in a note for it to even function as a note. Sure. 
But there are a few things that we might consider adding into our promissory note that provide us a tremendous more amount of flexibility that also serve the seller, or in this case now, the seller is not the seller anymore. They're the beneficiary of a promissory note. It actually enhance their best outcomes as well. But these elements of flexibility, like they completely change the deal. So when you buy a property with seller financing, you're really buying two things. You're buying a property and you're buying the financing. Now, in the case of what most people think of with loans, especially those who come from a, a default perspective of bank loans, of course, that's where we all kind of start, is the property and the financing are married together. They're one and the same, more or less, yeah. because of the due on sale clause. So if you sell the property, you're going to be paying that bank loan off. But in the case of seller financing, you can think of the property and the financing as two completely separate things, each of which have their own intrinsic value, right? You could buy an amazing property with meh financing, seller financing. You could buy a meh property with amazing seller financing. But what's really interesting is with a few bits of knowledge about how to negotiate some terms into your seller financing note, these two things don't have to be married together forever. So. That means I'm always trying to buy the best properties I can buy because that's what I want to own. But I'm also always trying to negotiate the very best seller financing loans because that's what I want as well. But those two and things so, don't have to stay together the whole time. So correct me if I'm wrong. Are you saying obviously always that this isn't negotiable to have, you know, you want an excellent property, right? That makes sense. But on the financing terms, that could be meh, you know, it could be half decent, but you could make it and create it to be excellent in some form or fashion. Is that correct? Or am I totally? Yeah, that's okay. That's one of that's definitely one of the angles. So let me give you a funny statement that'll sound like a head scratcher at first, and we can unpack this. Yeah. But I buy properties all the time that I don't even want because I've bought a great block of negotiated seller financing. And sure. then I get rid of the property, but keep the financing. Okay. So okay. you you basically are just selling the note or you're keeping no. the note, but you sell, you transfer the note, you create a new note on your note that you negotiated originally. Nope. So what we're doing, so every promissory note has a piece of collateral that secures it. Sure. So one of the main premises, again, like a default knee-jerk assumption that we have is that the property that secures the note at the beginning has to be the property that secures the note throughout the whole life of that loan. But what if that wasn't the case? So what I would do in the situation I just described is I would buy a piece of property and a seller financing loan. I like the loan better than I like the property here. So I'm going to sell the property but I'm going to keep the loan. But I can't just keep the loan and just have it floating out there without any security, without any collateral. I just got rid of the collateral. So now I need to find a different piece of collateral to secure this loan because this loan and the beneficiary, the, you know, the lender, the previous owner, they have to be secured for this loan to be valid and legit. So I need to find a different piece of collateral for it. So I'm not selling the loan. As the maker of a note, uh, the borrower, it's not an asset to us anyway. We couldn't sell it even if we wanted to. But what I want to do is I want to choose a different piece of real estate, probably one that I already own that I can use as collateral for this note. So here, let me just give you a, a simple real life example. I go buy a small house in my market that might be like, I don't know, say 350, whatever. And I get $300,000 seller financing loan. And I'm really excited about the loan. I'm not so excited about the property. You know, the loan's 
10, 15 years, three and a half percent interest, interest only payments. It's a very advantageous loan. Now I negotiate in there this ability to substitute the collateral that secures the loan. And so I sell the property itself, but I have to provide new collateral for this loan. So I look in my portfolio and I say, oh, you know what? I've got this fourplex over here that has, you know, it's worth a million dollars and it's got $500,000 worth of debt, but it has more than enough equity to support this $300,000 note. It has more than enough net cash flow to make the payment on this $300,000 note. And so now I'm going to, instead of the old property, which I'm selling, I'm actually going to, we're going to record a new deed of trust on my fourplex that will become the security for this promissory note. So that's a simple example of how, and I realize if you're listening right now, you might be thinking, well, that's not that simple, but mechanically, it's a simple example of we're yeah. taking a note and we're just giving it a different piece of collateral. Yeah, you're but what we've done is we've bought a different note. property. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So then somebody might ask, they're like, well, how is that a good thing? Well, okay, let me, let's pause and ask you this question. Non-rhetorical question for a lot of people listening to this or watching right now. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever thought to yourself, dang, I've got all this equity in my, my non-owner occupied fourplex. And when I walk into the credit union and say, hey, can I get a you know 90% LTV loan on this? They're like, no, of course not. It's not a primary residence. That's way high LTV thresholds. No, no, not at all. A lot of people feel like they have equity and whatnot trapped in certain rental properties. They just don't, they don't know how to like put a tap into it to really get it out. So they're thinking if I want to get the equity, I have to sell the property or I have to do a full cash out refinance and replace all of the existing debt. Well, what I just described though, is actually a way that you could tap into the equity in that fourplex in just sort of an indirect two-step version, sort of an approach. So, because back to my example now, okay, back to my simple example, I've bought this little $350,000 single family home. I have a $300,000 supercharged seller financing loan on it. I'm going to take the deed of trust and, and release it from this house. At the same time, we're going to record a brand new one on the fourplex. I'm about to sell this house, but what's the status of this house right now? It's owned free and clear because I just took the debt off it and I secured the debt elsewhere. So what happens you know, at 5 p.m. the night you sell a house that you owned free and clear? You go out to dinner and celebrate because that is one hell of a good day because you just sold a house that you didn't owe anything on. So you're getting a giant wire transfer that day because really what you did indirectly was you tapped into the equity in your fourplex by buying a new single family home and negotiating supercharged seller financing. I like this. So uh, let me break down a question here for you. So when it comes down to, are you getting it appraised to the property or who is determining how much equity? Cause you could turn it into like a, a phantom loan basically where you're just piling on extra debt onto a property and it goes well over what the equity actually is. Is there, yeah. are you guys getting appraisals or is it some like his word versus like who's going to be able to determine where the equity is? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So when we are negotiating our supercharged seller financing loan, we add two requirements, like self-imposed requirements, because to your point, I mean, another way of saying what you're just saying is the beneficiary of this promissory note wants to make sure that what secures their loan is actually good enough collateral, right? Like one time I had a seller say to me, well, how do I know you're not just going to stick my loan on some vacant property out in the middle of nowhere? And I said, that's a really good question. And I can answer that with showing the two standards we create for ourselves. One is it has to have enough equity. I'll come back to that. 
And secondly, it has to have enough cash flow. Now, my answer to her question, why aren't you going to just stick me with some collateral out in the middle of nowhere, is the collateral out in the middle of nowhere would have no income, let alone cash flow to pay your note. So we're going to, you know, we look at our note, we say the balance is this, the monthly payment is this. Now I have the sort of burden of proof, you might say, when I say I'm going to provide you with a new and different upgraded and oftentimes this is maybe how we would position it piece of collateral for your loan it's on me to demonstrate to them that there is enough value there in terms of equity and that there is enough cash flow so to what extent i have to go to prove that is sort of dependent on the the nature of the relationship with that beneficiary right somebody who theoretically somebody could say well i require an appraisal to know what it's really worth i've literally never had anybody uh, it requests that though. I come and I say, here's what this property is worth. Uh, here's a few data points. So you know, I didn't just make that up. And uh, here is the cash flow. And here's what I can show you. The, I can show you the leases. I can show you the existing debt payment if there is any. I can show you what the expenses are, taxes, insurance, utilities, all that. Sure. So we can see exactly how much money is left over at the end of the month. And if I can show you that there is more than enough money left over at the end of the, every month to make your payment, and there's more than enough equity to support your loan balance, we're good to go. So the benefits behind this is obviously not leaving any equity on the table. You can maximize the most out of it so that you can compound your success behind this and gather up as many more properties as possible, correct? That's yeah, I would say that's one way. That's certainly one very good thing about it. Here's how I would like to think of it is is that as investors, we're always all the time, like whether everybody listening to this right now thinks of it this way or not, we're always trying to gather properties that we want to own. We're always trying to gather the money that we need and we're trying to pair them together in different ways right people put a lot of effort into making themselves look the way they need to look for a bank to say yes to a 30-year fixed loan or a, you know making the property look a certain way to get a dscr loan or whatever people put a lot of energy into getting these blocks of debt and so my point is that this is a different way to acquire blocks of debt that's also far more flexible um, because you can recycle that block of debt by moving it throughout your portfolio if you wanted or needed to. I love that. Yeah, man. So the benefits behind you know any anybody that is doing seller financing right now, it's really a no brainer, right? That they should be doing this as well. They should be doing the supercharged seller financing. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say so, but I think that there's an important point here to unpack. If if you know, with your permission to spend a couple more minutes on this. Yes. So somebody listening to what we were just talking about might say, well, why would the seller do that though? Why would the seller allow this? So let's talk about that because this is really, this is really important to the, the whole bigger picture actually with seller financing. There is a, a kind of a typical myth, I would say, or maybe it's even a set of myths about seller financing and sellers, you know, thoughts of seller financing. You know, to generalize that, I could say a lot of people feel like seller financing is something sellers do as a last resort. They do it reluctantly. If there was another way they could get it done, if they could just get cashed out, if their buyer could come with a new loan, like that's always what they'd prefer. But so they kind of do this reluctantly. So why would they be allowing you to do that? So that we have to start with that and simply establish first that that is not the case whatsoever. There are two categories of sellers who do seller financing, those who are willing to, and then those who want to. And those who want to are absolutely out there. And again, like I said earlier, they might not know that they want to the second you start talking to them, but as they start to understand 
maybe what some of the options are and the pros and cons of different things, they start to realize that that is truly in their best interest. So what are some of the reasons why seller financing is in their best interest? Well, one of the main ones, I mean, probably the number one in my portfolio and all the deals I've negotiated is they're at a point in their life where they've owned this property for a long time. It's been very good to them. They're not in any type of distress at all. They don't fit any motivated seller paradigms. Yep. But let's say they're 70 and they would like to spend their time in a different way than keeping feeling tethered to a property, managing a property. So yep. they're at this spot where they would have a gnarly capital gains tax situation if they sold, but they also are not real excited about doing a 1031 exchange, which is basically just saying like, oh, I'll trade this responsibility for another responsibility. They just kind of want to be done with that chapter of their life. That's a massive one. So if they have a bunch of capital already, they just don't want this liability anymore. They want to be more hands-off and they don't want to be hit with this huge tax bill because how long they've held it and it's worth millions now. I mean, all these, you know, there's many different benefits of of being the seller in this case. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say that the desire to defer capital gains without needing to do a 1031 exchange is a major, major driver for the right the right types of sellers. And that's that means that this is who we're looking for is this person. Another one is they say, Oh, well, I wouldn't mind selling this property, but I kind of like the income. I mean, that's why I bought the property in the first place. I like the income. We live off the income. Sure. Hmm. Bummer. So that sets us up for seller financing as well, because we can make the proposal that says, well, let's find a way for you to continue to receive the income that you like and are reliant on. Yeah. And then there's also a third reason. There's a lot of people who just, they wouldn't know what to do with a, a big giant lump sum of money anyway. It, like if they don't really need it, if they don't have other, they don't need to pay off their own primary residence. They don't need to go buy a yacht you know, they don't, they don't have any idea. And, and actually the idea of getting that much money and then figuring out something smart to do with it actually feels like a little bit of a burdensome project. If that is you, reach out to us right now. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll help, help you put it to work. Just kidding. Yeah. So we're, we're looking for sellers who have those characteristics and there are a lot more of them than people would think. Okay. So now we're bringing it back to the, the question of why would somebody let you swap the collateral. Okay. So let's just say you've bought their single family home. They are thinking, oh, I'm going to be getting payments from Jeff for the next 10 or 15 years or whatever you've negotiated. That means that they are deferring, like they've created a financial strategy around capital gains, tax deferral and whatnot. And they're expecting this party to go on for the next 10 or 15 years or whatever, whatever the length of the loan is. But you as the owner, or in this case, me, if I, I have every right or, you know, it's my prerogative to sell my own property or refinance my own property if I want to. And if I did that and they got paid off, all of a sudden now we've really actually screwed up all of their financial planning, right? Because they're thinking, oh, we're deferring these capital gains for the next 15 years. Oh, wait, it's coming now. You're, getting, you're paying me off now. Uh Oh, that's a problem. The income stream I was depending on for the next 15 years is, wait, it's drying up because you're paying me off early. Oh, shoot, that's a problem too. And so the, the ability to substitute collateral is not just something that's, that I like. In fact, they, they don't even really have any idea like how that would be of benefit to me because really the point of this is to say to them, we need to add this provision into the loan because I know that you're planning for the, this to go a certain way for the next 10 or 15 years here. And if I have to sell or refinance this property, I don't want to screw up all your plans. 
What really matters here is that we make sure you have amazing collateral at every second of the next 15 years. And so I need then to have the, you know, the latitude to be able to keep your loan in play because that's what you've decided is most important to you. I like that. So yeah. if you did have a better opportunity out there with that current deal to be able to do a refi, like you'll take advantage of that, but you'll just re-collateralize that to a different property. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. I love that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about the alignment of people's interests, but we have to look at things from a different perspective. You know, we have to yeah. get rid of some of the assumptions about why people do or do not do seller financing. And we have to get rid of some of the assumptions about do on sale and all these things. We start to look at it a little bit more, maybe holistically or three-dimensionally perhaps. And we start to see, wow, there is really an alignment of interest here. There are people who want to make you a seller financing loan and do not want to get paid off. And then when we start to think of that strategically and sort of, I think of it as a chess you know, it's, it's like we're playing chess with our own portfolio, moving the parts around. Sure. We start to think of it in that way, a whole bunch of new stuff opens up possibility-wise. Okay. I have like a boatload of questions, but we're running close on time. So I want to try to hammer out some things, but how are you getting your lead generation right now? Yeah. Okay. Another good question and another strategic answer. So I could just tell you two words, but then you'll make some assumptions about that. So in order to have this type of this type of seller financing, if we were to think backwards from that, we have to have the right kind of negotiation. And the right kind of negotiation has to start with the right type of, of introduction to the seller. I'm telling you now, a, a bandit sign, while it might make your phone ring, is not going to tee up the warm relationship-oriented conversation with a seller who's not at all distressed, who just wants to play more golf and move to Arizona so they can be closer to their grandkids who is going to you know, be willing to sell their property to you with 10% down and 3.5% interest. Like That's not going to come from certain types of lead generation, just are not going to create those phone calls. It'll create other types of phone calls, but not those. And so we have to kind of work backwards strategically and ask the question to begin with, what is the channel and the message to the right audience is going to create not just calls, but the right types of calls. So anyway, I could go on for hours about how we do that. But the simple answer is we send a very nice, dead simple, unbelievably low pressure personal letter yeah. to okay. via, via snail mail, direct okay. mail, exactly okay. to people who have owned properties, absentee owners, you know, landlords, not people who live there because we're, we're looking sure. for capital gains problems. And we send them a super nice, easy, low pressure letter. Doesn't say I want to close fast. Doesn't say I'll buy it as is. Doesn't say I'll cover your closing costs or any of that garbage. It's a completely different message that positions us as a peer of theirs, not, you know, like I'm a solutions provider. I assume you have problems and need solutions. I'm the tiger. You're the gazelle. Like we, it's like, no, we're just equal, equal people. Reaching what what is the message that you're putting on there? Yeah, I will give you basically the transcription of the letter here. It is extremely strategic and also dead simple at the same time. Dear Bob, uh, my name is Jeff. I'm writing to introduce myself to you. My wife and I have a couple rental properties here in town. She and I are actively looking to buy another one that we can manage ourselves. We're pretty hands-on in that sense. I saw that you own the property here at this address. If you ever consider selling that property, would you please give me a, a phone call. I really love the idea of just talking directly with somebody, having a conversation about it and see if we could work something out. If now is not the right time and it very well may not be, just, you know what, hold on to my letter, 
pop it into a folder. Give me a call when the time is right. It'd be nice to chat with you. And worst case scenario, we make a new friend, you know, love Jeff. Like it's very, very, very simple. It doesn't say anything about closing fast and as is and nothing like that. It's just like, I'm a peer of yours. Uh, this is a very safe conversation as a result. Sure. And uh, so it makes the phone ring in a different way with different types of people. Now, when the phone rings, do you have a call center? Do you take it all yourself? How does that look? Yeah, no, I just take it myself because, I mean, if you think about this whole premise as being like an authentic trust-oriented relationship sure. approach, uh, like a call center would just be like extremely incongruent with that, with that, that whole a, thing. We're not, this is not a, a volume game. This is a quality game. Is that like a Google number that you have or like a, a no, call just, just my cell phone. Just, just my cell phone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have anybody ever call you up and like shout you out or anything like that or no? Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. But that's part of the part of the game. That's okay. I love it. Well, man, this was super incredible. I feel like I still have a boatload more questions, but this is really good. We'll probably have to have you back on in the future and and see what you come up with at that point. But where are you heading in the future? Like what does it look like? What kind of goals and aspirations do you have currently? Yeah. You know, so I feel like my job is to keep doing what I'm doing, but just become increasingly, I think, efficient with my own time. I will say one of the things about being an educator and and being blessed to be on podcasts and things like that is it definitely takes one's focus away from talking to sellers quite so much. So I'm trying to always find the right balance of that. Yeah. Another just an interesting thought to kind of philosophically aligned with what we talked about before, the idea of sample, 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 and then focus, focus, focus is what does growth mean? You know, for some people, growth means like, oh, I started with single family homes. Oh, now I'm too, you know, whatever experience, good, whatever for that. So now I'm doing four unit properties and now I'm doing 10 and now I'm doing commercial and now I'm doing syndications. But the other way of growing, I think, is is not necessarily about that. It's about like getting more and more and more double down, triple down, quadruple down on your own strengths. And so for me, what growth means is, while I do think to myself like, you know, sure, maybe I should be looking at 20 or 30 unit properties. For me, it actually means just like being better and better and better in my own sandbox. And I know like where, where I am best is sitting in the living room of a real person. So there becomes a point at which in, a, in sort of the continuum of, of properties that like there's not a real person's living room to sit in. If it's a, you know, 25,000 foot industrial building, it's more like a conference room you're going to be sitting in. And I've decided that's just not the venue where I want to show up. I want to sit on someone's ugly couch in their living room, just having a conversation with a regular person. So to me, growth means doing more and more and more of this, of like just being better and better and better within the sandbox, you know, like mastery of one particular thing. I love it, man. Yeah. There's nothing but respect for that. You know, when you laser beam focus and, and really just become the best at your craft, I think that's amazing. So Kudos to you, brother. I appreciate your time greatly today. And I have a boatload of notes myself. So I'm excited to be able to journal this stuff later. But guys, by all means, you should be reaching out to Jeff. Speaking of which, Jeff, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah. So I'm, I'm very active here on Facebook. Uh, it's okay. easy to find me and connect with me here on Facebook. Maybe four or five months ago created... I felt like we, we all need... Um, we need to be able to make sure we're speaking the same language in order to have great conversations about seller financing. So we created a seller financing 101 like fundamentals free video course. So if you were to go to sellerfinancing-101.com, you can get free access to that. 
And it just sort of gives us all like a common language and a framework so that we can now start having more advanced conversations about that kind of stuff. So I think it's a great resource. It's about three plus hours of video training over the course of about six different videos. So breaking it down and you'll definitely know, you'll definitely know more when you come out of that. Cool. I love that. Awesome. Well, guys, reach out to Jeff. He's a wealth of knowledge. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can always do so on Instagram. It is Brandon Elliott Investments, otherwise, Facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then if you are looking to get more educated on how the banks, creditors, bureaus, how they're all judging you so that you can truly play the game of financial literacy, like real life monopoly we're talking to be able to get up to $500,000 every 6 months at 0% interest and get big stacks of this stuff then by all means reach out to us you can check out creditcounselelite.com that's www.creditcounselelite.com there's a quick 10 minute video on there that kind of breaks down a little bit more of what the heck we can do for you and then afterwards feel free to book a call with either myself or one of our team members at Credit Counseling Elite to really be able to go over your situation, answer any questions that you might have, and see how we can best serve you in the future. And, uh, and if that isn't good enough, then make sure... I don't know if you haven't done this already. I don't know what you're waiting for. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast so you get the newest notification every Monday. We greatly appreciate all the love, all the support, and all of the five-star reviews. You guys are amazing. Love you so much. And we will catch you on the next episode. Till next time, stay blessed. Jeff, you're the man. Appreciate you. God bless. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. Brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.